Daily Coast's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Coast, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellebelt. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast's The Brief. I'm Marcos Molitzis with co-host Carrie Ellebelt. Welcome so much. Thank you for joining us. This is our weekly show about politics. Today, we're going to be talking kind of fittingly about Afghanistan. At 20 years, it was America's longest war. American troops hadn't even fully pulled out of the, before the entire Afghan army collapsed, surrendered in mass to a seemingly bewildered Taliban. They, they even paused before they entered Kabul because they were kind of unsure what was going on. So what has ensued since then are two weeks of frantic evacuation, providing both scenes of chaos and heartbreak, including a vicious terrorist attack, but also a sort of display of brilliant military logistics. At the time, journalists on the ground laughed at the idea that the U.S. could evacuate 50,000 people in two weeks. At the end, the final number was around 122,000 people evacuated. So through it all, despite torrents of criticism and hysteria from both Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill, President Joe Biden has stayed on track, reiterating his vow to fully depart the country by August 31st, never deviating. That is today's date as we record this, August 31st. All U.S. troops are out. He was assailed by the media, by pundits, even by his allies. There was this talk about reinvading Afghanistan, as though we could somehow fix all the mistakes that had been made time and time again over the last 20 years. But it seemed, Kerry, that he was the only person in D.C. that was determined not to repeat those mistakes, and he ignored the critics. He stayed the course. So what now? Republicans are trying to take advantage of Biden's slide in the polls to stop what's left of his legislative agenda. They'll try to make an issue of it, obviously, in the 2022 midterm elections, as well as in 2024. Will it work? Today's guest is John Soltz. He did two tours, two tours of duty in Iraq, and he is the chairman of Vote Vets, the nation's top progressive veteran rights organization. So I fully expect to have a great conversation he knows this stuff pretty inside out and almost from the inside because he is somebody he, who has served with many of the people that, uh, that uh, both served in Afghanistan, had a role in making decisions in Afghanistan, both the, the mistakes and, and stuff that I think the stuff that worked was getting out. That was the piece that finally worked is that realization that we were not going to win that war. And the fact that the government fell within hours, seemingly, of us beginning the pullout really, I think, confirms that we had done nothing on that nation building front. So, Carrie, you just uh, watched Joe Biden declare the end of the war and uh, I didn't get a chance to, to hear it. So you can uh, can share like what are your key takeaways are from that speech and both for our audience and for me. 
Yeah. Well, uh, so I literally just took it in. He just gave the speech. Um, you know, I, I think that, first of all, the he wanted to come out and give a defense of what the administration did, of, of what his White House, what he decided to do, what the White House did, how they did it. Um, and, you know, also not just a defense, but really sort of try and get the American people clued in, you know, um, signed on to what he was seeing, the way he was seeing the situation, the way he sees it now and um, and the way he sees the situation moving forward. And that being the global situation, the global threat of terrorism, not just this, you know, one supposed, you know, sort of threat in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, of course, I'm sure that they have an eye on, uh, and this is not to dismiss, um, I think, President Biden's real deep emotions around leaving Afghanistan, um, around it being the right thing to do, around having lost uh, American lives while doing it. Um, but I'm sure that they are also anxious to turn the page on this chapter and, you know, move forward. I think when I was watching it, it sounded like uh, President Biden emphasized the same thing several times in several different ways, which was, you know, the military did an amazing job. They airlifted, you know, a ton of people out in in an operation that certainly no other, um, you know, military on earth could do. Under um, very hostile conditions, 122,000 people right. in two weeks, which is just a monumental right. logistical marvel. I, I don't think people right. understand the scale and the scope of 122,000 people in planes that carry dozens to a couple hundred people. This is, we're not right. talking, sticking them all in a big so, boat. Right. So he, so he wanted to talk about that. He wanted to talk about how the facts on the ground had changed. I mean, this is something he reemphasized over and over again in terms of Trump making the quote unquote peace deal with the Taliban. Um, the threat had changed. Um, his assessment certainly of where the real terror threat for the nation lies had changed. And he wanted to make sure people really understood that the, he felt like there were only two options. There, this idea of like leaving several thousand troops in there and it was just going to continue. He said the world had changed. You know, that it wasn't the same anymore based on this deal that Trump made, based on where the real terror threat was. One of the sort of key arguments that Republicans are going to be making in the months ahead, and I think for the next two years, actually, going into the 2024 election is that Biden left people behind. So that's going to be one of the things to to really keep an eye on. Is that actually true? Who was left behind? We know some people wanted to be left behind, left behind, wanted to stay because they have families there, because they're working with aid agencies that are doing work on the ground, providing help and assistance to Afghans. This is an incredibly poor country. 40% of Afghanistan depends on foreign aid. It doesn't really have a very established private sector. Most people work for the government. It creates a condition that um, a lot of people are going to likely suffer. So there is a lot of a lot of Westerners who wanted to stay to continue that aid work, whether they can under the Taliban remains to be seen. So did he speak to that art, to that criticism? In this well, speech? certainly. I mean, this is one place where he emphasized some of the numbers that you've been emphasizing. Um, you know, he, 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 he said, you know, by the numbers that um, that, you know, they airlifted 100,000, you know, a, 
roughly uh, probably a little bit more than 100,000 Afghans out and that they had airlifted about 5,500 Americans out. And he, he said, look, we started reaching out to Americans who were in the country in March saying, we're going to leave and, you know, we're going to and do you want to get out? Right. And bottom line, he said 90 percent of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave there were able to leave. And those remaining, there is no deadline. He said we remain committed to getting them out, you know, if they want to come out. And he said some of them, you know, there were probably, I don't know, 100 or maybe more that kind of decided that they wanted to stay because they were dual citizens. They had, you know, deep roots in the area, in the region. Um, but, he, but he said it was, it was definitely the consensus opinion of both military commanders and civilian advisors that, it was that it was no longer in the best interest to have 6000 troops there in Kabul trying to complete this mis- mission and that there were when it was just you know it was obviously fraught it was very difficult to get people to the airport um, and that they were better off at this point trying to get those folks out diplomatically and through other means, you know? Yeah. So the U S and on that front, the U S has made an agreement with the Taliban and 97 other countries to continue allowing nationals and their allies, people who had the proper documentation to leave Afghanistan. Now right. there's a big question. Do you really trust the Taliban and I don't think anybody is gonna is is really eager and ready to trust them. But the reality is that forty percent of of Afghanistan Afghan people depend on foreign aid. This is a country that is desperately poor with no real infrastructure, no real established private sector, and now the Taliban has to rule this country. And they're going to have they cannot have 40 percent of its population starving because that's just the seed for the next uh, revolution or maybe even seeds for ISIS, uh, which is Taliban's new rival in the country. And so there is an incentive for the Taliban to play nice with Western power so they can unlock their foreign reserves. It's like eight billion dollars in foreign reserves that the U.S. has locked up and also to allow that foreign aid to start flowing in again. So cautiously optimistic that the Taliban's self-interest will lead them to keep allowing these people to leave the country. Uh, Certainly Americans, but I'm also very concerned about our allies, uh, people who work for the Americans who weren't able to get out and other uh, artists and musicians and, and people in the government. There's a lot of, of, uh, of people that the Taliban would probably, the old Taliban would have executed outright now I'm hopeful that they'll allow them to leave just to be able to unlock this foreign aid. Did he talk anything about the Afghans left behind, our allies, our friends? Oh, I'm sure they're going to. Yeah, I mean, those that part of the speech did not stick out to me, I'll be honest. Um, but he, he said there would be an ongoing effort. There would clearly yeah. be an ongoing effort, right, um, to, to, to both get Americans out and to get Afghans who remained and who were, you know, allies of the U.S., uh, out. So I, I think that's going to be ongoing. That was a clear part of his message. But I think part of the strongest, you know, some of the strongest parts of his speech was were when he sort of tried to get Americans plugged back in to the decision to leave 
the the fact that most Americans didn't want to be in this war anymore. And also the toll taken on the nation and the people who are fighting this war, you know, the young, mostly young Americans who are fighting this war, many of them, um, the costs of it. So, you know, in, in terms of the, his big message on the decision to leave was that the status quo was no longer an option, right? The status quo of having just a few thousand people there was no longer an option. He said, by the time I came into office, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 2001. And that, I mean, I, I think that's very true when you look at how quickly they sort of overran yeah. the country after, um, you know, we stopped providing military support, right? He said everything had changed based on the Trump deal, which was true. He also said the world is changing and and that the he, he, it was no longer in America's strategic interest to be in Afghanistan. That's not where the terror threat is anymore, even though that's where it was two decades ago. You know, it was kind of emphasizing this. It's been two decades and our and our, you know, our strategy hasn't like other than, you know, some surges here and there and some drawdowns, our strategy for fighting terror in Afghanistan hasn't changed in two decades. It was outmoded was basically what he was saying. So he said he wanted to go after terror where it is today, not where it was two decades ago. And I, I think that's something that will, you know, ring true with most Americans. And then he talked about, I don't think we understand what we've asked of the 1% of of Americans who serve, right? And he said 18 veterans on average die by suicide every single day in America. So, you know, he, he really was trying to bring home the costs of the war and the fact that it wasn't in their strategic interests and that he wasn't going to, you know, extend a forever war and then also extend our exit of a forever, forever war. Yeah, if you if you go, I spend time in military forums. Um, some of you may know I'm a U.S. Army veteran. I was an artillery man, um, 89 and 92. I was stationed in Germany. And uh, I served during the first Gulf War. My son right now is in basic training. I'm going to go to his graduation on Friday down at Fort Benning, Georgia. So I'm pretty excited about that. He's an infantryman. So both of us decided to go into the combat arms and... I, I spend a lot of time in military forum. Not a lot of liberals, as you might imagine, right? We're 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 pretty um, rare. And I actually want to talk to John when he comes on a little bit about that culturally, what that's about. But what it means is there there is there is a even with traditional military vets and people who are still serving, there is this. Um, you roll your eyes when people come up and say thank you for your service, right? And, and then they even do a you know the initials, the T-Y-T-F-S, thank you for your service, um, as a sort of a mocking term, right? Because our military, they're, they're doing a job and everybody else just forgets they exist. I mean, how much coverage of Afghanistan did the media have the last few years? You know, we still had people dying, still people trying to do their mission. They're totally ignored. And so it a burden a heavy burden on our men and women in uniform takes them away from their families. Um, this whole support your, you know, support the troops, put yellow ribbons by cheerleading a war is actually not really the best way to support your troops. The best way to support troops is to keep them alive, is to keep them back home with their families, safe and sound. And like you say, Carrie, suicide is a very 
serious problem in addition to drug use, uh, opioid uh, addiction, things like that. So these are all major issues. And having these never-ending wars pretty much exacerbated that that uh, that position. And not just our active duty, National Guard, which I'm very plugged into now because now my son is going to be National Guard. National Guard being sent to deployments on the nation's capital and on the southern border and to help fight wildfires in California and to help with hurricane relief in the Gulf. And and these people are overstretched and they're being pulled away from their jobs and from their families. And it does take a toll. So that's not even talking about the money spent. I mean, Afghanistan was about what, $250 million a day. And here they say, no, nah, we can't, we can't forgive college loans. We don't have the money, but let's just, let's just keep spending, you know, one and a half billion dollars a week in Afghanistan. And like, I'm, I'm glad he talked about the mission has changed because the mission was to find Osama bin Laden. And that was done. That was done two presidents ago. That was already done. So the world changes and this clinging to Afghanistan for, for basically propping up a corrupt regime. And we know it was corrupt because the first second they had a little bit of adversity, they ran, they all fled the country. They were the first out of the country. They were the first ones out. And so, um, I'm glad this war is over. I think that people are going to be relieved. Once the shock and the grief from the terrorist attack that killed 13 American uh, Marines and service members, I think once you get past that immediate shock of the images of people trying to flee and the desperation and the chaos, and once you look at the bigger picture, which is it had to happen, I think people are going to, they're not going to punish Democrats. I don't think they're going to punish Joe Biden for this. I just don't see it. You might see it differently. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I I, I honestly don't think that this particular issue, if you try to just, you know, if you try to silo this, which is kind of hard to do, but if you try to silo Afghanistan, right, I don't think that that is an issue that plays heavily, certainly in the midterms. Now, you know, could people try to, could Republicans try to make something of it, you know, in 2024? Sure, they might. Um, but but I, I don't think we're anywhere near knowing how this is going to, you know, settle out with the American public yet. And I, I don't think it's an issue that congressional Democrats are going to face in 2022. You know, I, I've been looking at because because his because Biden's approval ratings are falling. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. Yeah. You know, I, I've been I haven't written a story on it yet, but I've been I was kind of poking around with the numbers last night. I was looking at civics right in the civics tracking poll on Biden's numbers. And he starts, he's eight points underwater at this point with, um, on civics. Now, you know, I don't think that the actual numbers are really the important thing at the moment. I think the trend is the more important thing just to pay attention to. And the trend on civics where he started to fall underwater was kind of around mid-May. That was much earlier than where most polls had him starting to fall. He was sort of bumping around right around 52% approval, above water, et cetera, right up until late July, which which suggests that, you know, this sort of fall of a few points in the last um, last several weeks have been Afghanistan specific. I think there's something bigger going on. Um, and, and 
I don't think it, that it's a silo situation. I don't think you can say it's just that the p- pandemic has come up and the Delta surge is scaring, is scaring people. I don't think you, you can just say it's just because of Afghanistan and the withdrawal, the chaotic withdrawal there. Um, I, don't, I don't think you can say it's any one issue. Here's what I think is happening. And this is just a gut thing, but it's very global. Biden, President Biden is is presiding over a change presidency. He was he emphasized that the status quo in Afghanistan is not the same as it was. And that is true. The status quo is not the same. And we've America's just been kind of, you know, bumping along like it's all like everything's the same. Right. He the pulling us out is a recognition that the status quo, that things are changing. You know, these huge infrastructure bills and investments that he's trying to make and that Democrats are trying to make in America is a giant like I don't think we kind of because we've been talking about for months and months. I don't think we can really get what a big change it would be to have these implemented, not just the investments, but some of the social safety nets that it would add, the way it would start to, you know, sort of balance out how polemic our economic system has gotten in terms of the haves and the have-nots. You know, the coronavirus, the pandemic, I mean, this is just, this is, we are living in an age where the status quo is being completely unended. And I think people in general, and they can't even quite pinpoint, because if you see some of these polls, they're very contradictory. Even within the same poll, you'll have contradictory answers as to who's at fault for Afghanistan and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and then, you know, Biden's approval rate is falling, but, you know, people are holding mostly the unvaccinated, you know, accountable for the Delta surge. It's things like that. Just sort of conflicting information. I think people just have agita. I think people are just uncomfortable. This is an uncomfortable period of time to live in. And he is providing, he is presiding over a change presidency in a world that is changing and a nation that is changing. And I think that's part of what's reflected now in some of the dip in his poll numbers. Now, I have no idea what kind of outcome that's going to have, but that's my sense of what's going on here because nothing seems linear about what's happening. Yeah, to be very clear, I was looking at those civics numbers too. There's been a little bit of erosion amongst Democrats. Republicans never liked them. This is all independents. So these right. are not the partisans. I think the partisans are pretty locked in on both sides of the aisle. It's people who are less attuned. Now, there's a lot of this idea that there's like an independent that's this split between a Republican and a, and a Democrat is is actually not true, and the data has always shown it. Independents can be everything from Tea Party Republicans to Bernie Sanders liberals and all sorts of permutations in between and to the fringes of those two groups. So it's not like he needs to find the middle and therefore he finds it, but it's people who are not partisan aligned. And so they're not going to, they're not, they're not rooting for Joe Biden because he's part of the team or rooting against them because he is the enemy. These are people that are politically disengaged. And I, I think you may be right about that. I suspect that the lack of prog- progress after the first stimulus bill has been a factor in that. It seems to the, yes. things have gotten bogged down. And so you get this sense of like, uh, here we go again, the same old BS as always. I know that Republicans are making a big, their argument on Afghanistan 
has been it's been muddied and it's definitely been sort of conflicted by the racism part the Stephen Miller this is all a global plot to bring brown people into America racism but I think the one real solid hit they can do and not because I think it's true but because I think it fits an actual narrative that 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 uh, undermines Joe Biden's the idea that he's not as competent as he claimed he was and so he's been steely, you know, he's been steely resolved the entire time, right? Whether it's COVID, whether it's Afghanistan, he did not waver that entire two weeks when people are screaming at him to to strike back and to blow up cities and to invade again. And, and he was completely calm. And so from a behavioral standpoint, from how he reacted, I think he did, he did what he needed to do. But I think Republicans obviously are good at creating new realities and they're going to try to use the images of chaos as a way to claim like, yeah, you thought he knew what he was doing, but he probably doesn't know what he's doing. And that, what may have been one of the strongest arguments he had in defeating Trump in 2020, right? It was like, Trump is, is a mess, you know, let's bring some adults back into town. So that is my fear is that that sticks because we need Joe Biden's approval ratings to, to remain in, they're not going to be positive. We're too polarized a country to actually have a popular presidency anymore, but at least in a place where it doesn't actively harm us uh, heading into 2022. So, Carrie, we have our, our guest is, has arrived. So let's bring on John. John Soltz is the chairman of VoteVets, a nation's premier progressive organization focused on uh, military and military families. He's an old friend back. Uh, there's not a lot of us uh, liberal veterans in politics. So uh, John and I have been friends for going way, way back. So, John, it's such a pleasure to uh, have you on the show. Thanks so much this, for joining us. This is great. You guys can hear me okay? We can hear yeah. you great. I mean, yep. I was just thinking about this. I was I was actually on the phone with Brandon Friedman. I said, Brandon, I got to go because Marcos has a podcast and I got to get on it. It's like 2006 when we started Vote Fest. And we were, people were like, well, why are you guys helping veterans run for Congress? And we were like, well, we're helping veterans run because they're the only people that can call out Bush on the war with any credibility. And Marcos was like one of our earliest supporters. And it was it was hard, you know. Last cycle, I think we spent $40 million helping Democrats not just helping veterans win, but like defending Democrats on military issues. And the first ad we made was this body armor ad. And at the time when we went into Iraq, we didn't have IBA or a sappy plate. So we, we went out to the desert in Arizona. We took an AK shot through the old body armor, the new body armor. And I didn't know Mark, I didn't have any juice with Marcos at the time, but he puts up this on Daily Coast and it says, sometimes you see an ad and it's just A plus. And it was the body armor ad. And that, that ad is still sort of, what most people remember as the start point and Marcos was Marcos's validation of it is, is forever in vote. That's lore in history, especially because he's a veteran as well. So thanks for having uh, me. That, that's awesome. And, and con- contextually, you got to remember that we send troops in without, you know, in unarmored Humvees without proper body armor. And that ad really showed that an AK 47, which is what the enemy had just punch right through the, you know, whatever armor our troops had, it was, it was, yeah. it was useless. And the, trillions of dollars dumped into the military industrial complex and we couldn't equip our troops on the front lines with with body armor was just 
unconscionable. So we called them, we had a whole program back in early days of Daily Coast called the Fighting Dems, which yes. is really focused on veteran candidates. And uh, and the thing is, a lot of them were, were running in districts with not, you know, they were not exactly, you know, Democratic leaning districts by any stretch of the imagination, a lot of rural seats and things like that, right? But it was great to be able to give these guys uh, and a few women as well give them support uh, from a movement that for lots of reasons, you know, isn't exactly a uh, pro military ideologically. So John, how did, how did you, we always, we're going to talk about Afghanistan, but we always kind of talk about origin story. And, and I'm curious really about how you ended up being a liberal and a liberal activist. Uh, What was your path to get there? It's interesting. We're having that conversation today because you know, I wanted to be an army officer. So I went to college, I got an ROTC scholarship. I went to Coastville, I was an armor officer. I went to Iraq, I was doing truck ops, which was much more dangerous than being in tanks because we didn't have uh, exactly the equipment we needed at the early phase of the war. And when I, you know, when I got out of the war the first time before I went back uh, until my second tour in Iraq, you know, it was, I was, it was a reflection moment for me. And I was in Kosovo at a time when the Bush-Gore fight happens and I listened to the whole like nation building and, you know, the military is not prepared to fight overseas because we're involved in these wars. And my take coming out of Iraq was that it was an it was an it was nation building, you know, that the, the weapons weren't there. We were getting mortared all the time. And, you know, I, I, did, I didn't look at the war at that point from a moral standpoint. I looked at it as like, did we just commit like our army to this? country for literally 10 years it's going to cost trillions of dollars thousands of lives and and the truth is the military you know the people who serve in it the the the, the actually that fight you know they don't really win you know states can win wars politicians can win but the, the the human aspect of war the civilians don't win right the 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 people who fight it on both sides don't win so it's you know it's a really nasty business and when you're going to ask people to fight and die for their country you need it to be worth something like something tangible to protect this country and I very much believed in Iraq when I went. I, I thought there was no way there wouldn't be weapons of mass destruction. And I felt misled by by the Bush administration. And I ended up meeting John Kerry at the airport and giving him my spiel and talking about overextension of the armed forces. And he ended up just calling me on the phone when he was running for president. And next thing I knew, I was I did the Jim Jim Lair News Hour <laughs> and I was debating the war. And from there I, I sort of got involved from that one experience of just I, I didn't really care at that point. I just wanted to tell the truth. I felt like the truth about Iraq at that point was not in the news media whatsoever. And now people ask me all the time, John, how did you know the wars weren't weren't right? And I said, the truth is everybody knew. The question was, did you just have the credibility or the courage to say it? And I think that's when we look at Afghanistan today, we have to look back at 15 or 16 years of people who've misled our country about where things really stood. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think. That's certainly been on me for the last week. Um, And when I think back to why I got involved, it it, it wasn't hard to know the truth. It was, did you have the courage to speak it? How how do you, given that, I I wonder how you view what President Biden has done and and how he's done it um, in terms of withdrawal. Where where are you with that? I mean, the military, we talk about ends, ways, and means, right? The end state, I think we all agree with, right? Which is to end the war. I, I think the, the first thing about Joe Biden on that, if you go back to the presidential debates, you know, Bernie and Warren were kind of like end forever war. And the question was, would Pete do it or would Biden do it? You know, Biden was tied to Obama's surge in, in Afghanistan. That's a surge we opposed. 
And I think when the administration came in, we were expecting to debate this in terms of the authorization of use of military force. So the 2001 authorization is still being used to fight organizations in Africa that did not exist on 9-11. So I think that if we had to guess, Biden was rather strong in the debates about repealing the AUMF. I thought that was the terms we would go into here. Instead, he just he he we were you know, there was a lot of pressure to pull out by one May. He didn't do it. He announced a September 11th deadline. And I, I think I was surprised by the strength of that position. I, I understand there was a debate inside the Obama administration that this president, Joe Biden, was against the surge. There was a, a huge divide. And I don't think that everything that happened could have been anticipated. Of course, there's things they could have leaned in on more than others. We all know that. Right. But the fact that you know, Ghani surrendered the country uh, and left that morning. I- I'm not sure anybody predicted that. And, you know, I think it's absolutely incredible that we got 120,000 people out of that country. And for the first time since the first days of the 2003 invasion of Iraq, did the wars get the news coverage that maybe they deserved? And it was the first time the entire country was really putting emphasis on it. And the, the idea that we could get the 82nd in there and the Marine Expeditionary Unit, the Strategic and Theater Reserves, to evacuate 110,000 people or 20,000 people was was incredible. So I, I, I'm I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback the commanders on the ground. Uh, I, I I feel as bad as everybody does about those who 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 were killed this week, but operationally speaking, it was a huge success. It was a huge success to get that many people out. Uh, that frankly is unprecedented and you know, and uh, a non-combatant evacuation operation. Yeah, I remember at the beginning of, you know, you had these scenes of chaos and there was a CNN reporter on the tarmac laughing at the idea that the U.S. might be able to get 50,000 people out right. in two weeks. And they ended up getting 122,000 people out. So I've been spending a lot of time in sort of military corners of the of the web. And there's a lot of frustration from, uh, at, you know, veterans who served in Afghanistan and fought and died uh, for some of those pieces of land that obviously are now back in Taliban hands. And a lot of that, you know, a lot of U.S. built equipment in Taliban hands. And it's sort of this feeling of, of, of waste and, and futility, which I'm sure was the same that Vietnam vets, you know, felt after that war. Um, your circle, I, I mean, how are you seeing, how are people dealing with the personal side of seeing Afghanistan fall in Taliban hands, aside from the strategic and the global war on terrorism, the personal toll. 63% of veterans support getting out of this war, right? That's a completely bipartisan dynamic. And to be fair to Donald Trump, he changed the game when he started like railing against the wars in the Republican debates. So there's, there's a lot of libertarian veterans, you know, out there that are like, they're done with these wars. There's progressive people. I think everybody was just sort of, shocked to see it play out as quickly as it did where Ghani just rolled out and everybody surrendered. And it's like, they didn't even put up a fight like that. Even in Iraq, we saw something different. We saw the Iraqi army get rolled, but when ISIS came in, the Kurds held the line. You know, we also, you know, I trained Pesh in 2011 in Northern Iraq and you had some geographic and human terrain features that prevented ISIS from taking the whole country. You had Shia-backed militias that were backed by the Iranians that fought back. You had, you know, Kurdish Peshmerga that fought back. So you, you know, they couldn't really get out of the Sunni areas. In Afghanistan, you saw this total capitulation, which even for me, you know, was like, 
wow, like they're they're the, the you know the 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 palace. I mean, it was it was. I think everybody was disappointed by that, and I'm sure the president, you know, was also. In regards to the Taliban taking terrain, when Donald Trump, you know, signed a peace agreement with the Taliban, I hope that these veterans are upset with him because he signed it unilaterally with the United States. And at some level it held. I mean, we weren't sustaining a lot of U.S. casualties for the past 18 months in Afghanistan. That's one of the big reasons that people are so confused about we could have just kept 2000 troops there. But the agreement was one between us that basically said, don't kill our people. But in the meantime, they were rolling the ANA, right? They were rolling them all over the country. The just, Afghanistan National, the Army, National right? Army, right? They were yeah. rolling them and they were surrendering. And, you know, the, the press who's so quick to get on TV right now and trash fighting, they weren't covering it, you know? So, you know, there was a lot of terrain that was lost. When Obama put all those troops in, we had get, surged into all this terrain. We gave it back as soon as we left. So, so losing terrain and regaining terrain, just like in Vietnam and Afghanistan, was was commonplace that's that's the story of the war let's not let's not make that you know about joe biden in regards to the, the military equipment on my second war in iraq i spent part of it doing foreign military sales deployment of equipment that's that is a contractor business you know you'll you, the defense industry is in there they are they they are pushing american type equipment we buy american type equipment and we distribute it right well have you guys heard the last two weeks oh my gosh the the logistics they don't have any logistics well when you give someone a Black Hawk helicopter or you give them an M1 tank, you're, you, there's all these special types of systems that you need to sustain that piece of equipment that the Afghan National Army is not going to be able to do without U.S. force. So the idea that we're using U.S. equipment at one level is great because it's great equipment, but you're constraining logistically an ability of a country like Afghanistan where only 10 percent of the army was literate to actually sustain it. And it was an Achilles heel it's the whole reason why we should be giving out AK-47s and not import carbines, because an AK-47 is a weapon they understand. They can sustain it themselves. You can bury it in the ground and use it. But an M4 has a different supply chain to it. So th- th- this is you know, one of the reasons that we had challenges in Iraq and Afghanistan was the reliance on you know, advanced weaponry that they could never sustain or supply themselves. Joe Biden mentioned in the speech sort of the toll on veterans and, and the high suicide rates um, that are sustained by by our vets. I, I'm not sure what the question is, but does ending the forever war is that like is that like a first step towards improving the mental health of our vets and our force? Because presumably a lot of those suicides are, are PTSD. It's it's uh, it's based on the trauma of, of combat. Correct. I think some of it's based on combat. I think a lot of it is just based on people don't relate anymore, you know? And, you know, I had a hard time when I came back. I remember I left the war. I went to graduate school at University of Pittsburgh and I'm sitting next to kids in class that are my age, but I didn't, I woke up every day and was like, who died in Iraq yesterday? And they, they, it's not the world that those people lived in. And, you know, I got on an airplane one day and I was like the last person on the plane. And this woman was so nice, she let me sit down. And I said, why were you so nice to me? And she says, oh, I'm a Baptist minister. I, everyone's got a hidden problem, and I don't like to add to it. And I, I remember thinking in that conversation, you know, being a veteran who comes back from a war at 24 or 25, there just weren't a lot of other veterans that come back from a war that's 24 or 25. It's, it's, it's similar that maybe you have a teenage pregnancy, or you come to this country and you don't speak English, or um, you, you – 
lose your spouse very early in life to a tragic accident. And there are certain things that happen in our lives where our peer group is not connected to us. And I think the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans was the peer group was not exactly connected to it. And if, if I had the answer for veteran suicide, I would be, I would be screaming it from the rooftops. I don't have an answer for it. What I can tell you is when I see Joe Biden speak, I see a father who thinks his son died because of the war in Iraq and whether or not there's science to back it up or not, Joe Biden wakes up every day and says, I know how these people feel because my son went to war for a year and, you know, he died of cancer. And it's not the first time he's mentioned or it's, he's mentioned more than once the relationship between the burn pits and cancer. And I, I think he he relates to it in such a personal way that there's no think tank expert. There's no Ph.D. who's going to argue this thing on some abstract policy theory they wrote in graduate school. He sees it from a very human way and he knows the pain he feels and if he's going to ask that pain of other people he's going to make sure it's worth it and he could not get to a point where the war was worth it any longer and i think that that's that's really more than being a president he's the father of someone he feels died in the war and he lives with that every day i i think that's one of the things that made him so resolute about the exit and even as he was kind of getting incoming from both sides of the aisle and people you know hair on fire sort of you know, media coverage. He just, he really seemed to stay the course. You know, I, I, I don't want, I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier. I don't want to let you leave without talking about steps going forward, because you mentioned the, the use of military force authorization um, that we've been using, what, since 2001 to, to, um, to go, you know, to authorize military force in these, in these forever wars. Do you want to see something done with that would be one question. And, you know, what is your organization looking for, pushing for from the, from the Biden White House? In regards to the immediate, I think going forward, we just, there are still people to get out, right? And we're going to support that. You know, our foundation's been raising money for refugee services, not not the, the GoFundMe pages, but substantial organizations we work with for many years. You know, I know Marcus is familiar uh, about some of our stances of immigration policy and welcoming refugees, especially refugees because of our war. So I think starting with that, we have to see that through and make sure that people get here and are treated right um, as well. In regards to AUMF, you bring up this really important issue because, you know, Barbara Lee has a bill to repeal the 2001 AUMF, right? That's, that is legislation, that vote that says endorsed. One of the crazy things out there was we started this weird alliance with the Koch network on this issue. We have this weird right and left alliance. And the truth is the challenges are in the center. The challenges are for the sort of Republicans in the center, some of them who support, who, who did, who did not, who supported impeachment but at the same time, we're sort of neoconservative in their leanings. And then you have Democrats, some of which that are more conservative leaning districts that are afraid. We have not, you know, the, the military veterans of vote that has supported are very good on AUMF, but we see it in, in other leanings. But there is this wacko alignment from the progressives, Ro Khanna's, right, and, and that crowd and, and some of the libertarians out there on repealing that legislation, which is one of the most interesting dynamics in Congress. With that said, that legislation for 2001 has been used to fight everywhere in the world for the past 20 years. And if we're going to get serious about the future, we have to get serious about repealing that legislation because that will change the game. The idea that we're fighting organizations, like I said, in Africa that didn't exist on 9-11 or we intervened in Yemen, right, under the early stages of the Bush administration, or we had people die in Niger under authorization from 2001 
is absolute negligence from Congress. And it's the number one legislative priority of our organization. And it has been. And we have had some success. We were not able, we were, we were able to prevent George or Donald Trump from using that authorization to strike Iran. Like that was repealed. But it's challenging because there is something out there called presidential war powers. The president can essentially start war anywhere in the world within 90 days. So I, I, I think in the future, if we've learned anything from this war, we will see veterans of it stand up and really talk about war powers reforming Congress in Congress, taking back their constitutional authority to control when this country goes to war in the future. So, John, also think about moving forward. It may be too early to ask this question, but looking ahead to 2022, you, you had your candidates that you, you defend and you're also, uh, you, you know, we're going to probably have veterans running that you're going to be behind. But uh, are you seeing any attacks from the Republican side yet that might have any kind of resonance around either Afghanistan or other issue, you know, military issues, cutting the defense budget, things like that, where you are going to you are going to you see yourself as a frontline defense against those attacks? Well, we're frontline defense. That's why we're here. We, I like to say we're the infantry of politics. We're always looking for the fight. Um, I, I don't have the numbers on it yet. What I can tell you right now is that veterans agree with getting out. Here's where the challenge is. You guys have heard the Gerald Ford argument. Oh, Gerald Ford didn't pay the price for Vietnam. Well, Democrats were in the opposition party, and they probably, you know, maybe didn't attack on it. Republicans had hearings on contractors and an ambassador for years and years and years in Benghazi. I think it would be a fool to think that they don't get a vote here um, on what they're going to try to drive in the midterms. So I, I definitely think, you know, in the in the months and weeks to come, you know, getting in and testing the effects of this in battleground states is important. Donald Trump lost the presidency because he lost veterans 14 points more to Joe Biden than he did Hillary Clinton. We have to look and see how soft that is. And if we've seen a if we've seen a swap here going into the reelect. But I think it's safe to say, especially if Republicans were to capture the Senate or the House, there would be a substantial amount of pressure on this issue because this is generally a line of effort that they want to fight on. So I think this is definitely an issue where Democrats have to be concerned going forward about how we frame this and how we get out there and tell the story of success before they can frame it as a failure. I was talking about earlier how my son is at Fort Benning right now. He is uh, 11 Bravo. He is California National Guard. He is graduating Friday, so I'm going to head out there for the graduation. Uh, He's doing this thing called split ops that the National Guard has, where after your junior year, you do basic training, you come back, you do your senior year, and then you go back to Georgia and you finish your training. He wants to be Ranger qualified. He's like the most HUA motivated person. And he told me, he said, you know, everybody in my platoon, they're, they're, they're none of, nobody believes in evolution. <laughs> that was his like, big takeaway. And he finally found his group of uh, friends, but they're, you know, one's from Portland, one's from Seattle. It's like this West Coast little, little group. And it just sort of brings home just how, like, that this cultural disparity between liberals and conservatives and military service. And I always say that I, I am not the person I am today without my, my military service, my service in the U.S. Army. I'm, I'm curious, as you walk around donors and politicians, like being a veteran, there, there's a certain rote, thank you for your service, that is almost like subconscious. I don't think anybody really feels it anymore. It's like almost you just say it because it makes you feel good. 
Do you still sense, you know, latent hostility between the left and, and the military or the idea of military service? And I know there's lots of good reasons too, but like I said, for me, it was, it was critical to being who I am today. And I'm so thrilled that my son is doing it. And I don't know if you see any sort of hint that maybe there's, there's a world where you don't have that hostility between liberals and military service. I think in these wars, what one of the things that was really different was that 90 something percent of America, 98%, 99% separated the war from the warriors. Like that, that didn't, you know, the things that we saw in Vietnam did not happen in these wars. Um, and I've, I've never felt from conservatives or liberals that they didn't respect people that had the, you know, courage to like put on the uniform and, and, and do that. I, I haven't felt that from, I felt misunderstood, right. A lot of the times on why I felt a certain way, or I don't, you know, we can disagree on policy, but I think that's one of the most positive things I can say about this experience in the last 20 years was no matter what side you were on, when you came out of the airport in Atlanta and, and you got off the flight from, from the Middle East and you were there and the USO was there, there was Republicans and Democrats there greeting you, you know, and, and nobody really turned on the folks who served this country in this war. And I think that's, that's one of the, the great aspects of, of how our country handled this. That's at least yeah. heartening. You know, let me let me get back to something else you said. You were talking about how uh, how Trump lost veterans by a fourteen point a great greater than fourteen point or fourteen points more to Biden than he did to Clinton. I, I think I just jumbled that, but uh, you said it better. Anyway, I, did you get a sense of why that was? Because I, I still, I mean, I feel like Biden is you know, walking a line with vets and I'm not sure where they're going to come down. I wonder, you know, it, so much of red America is, are still the people fighting these wars, signing up, going to war. Um, it's, you know, signing up for the military. What's your sense of why Biden either gained those people or Trump lost them? It's probably a combination of both. I think, you know, Marcus used to have all these great polls on the coast website, right? And and I will go there and I'm always looking at the tracking polls. And yeah. you know, there's a debate about getting out progressives, right? And talking to white voters that were losing. And I like to say in the army we win wars because we bring armor, artillery, infantry, and air power together at a decisive point. And I, I don't think democratic strategy should ever be we only need to get the base out. I think we need to get the base out. I think we need to get women out. I think we need to cut our losses with certain constituencies. Joe Biden still lost veterans to Donald Trump. He just lost them by so much less than, than Hillary Clinton did. That's, that's based on you know a New York Times article by Nate Cohn that ProPublica had done. Um, and I think when, when you look at that demographic, the same went for, for Joe Biden in Pennsylvania. You know He didn't really win the base more. He won rural parts of the state more. So I think that's one piece of it. But I think some people were just against Donald Trump. I mean, he continually went after the officer corps. He trashed senior military leaders, suckers. I mean, it was just one thing after another of utter disrespect to people who served in the military that at some point, I think people were just like, I'm done with this guy and we're just going to try someone else. And, and, you know, when you talk about 14 points, I don't think you can say it's one thing or another. I think some of it probably was Biden related better. A lot of it though has to be people were done with Donald Trump and, the, the rocket man tweets about Korea or the, the trash of 
General Mattis or, you know, ridiculousness about, you know, Confederate base names and just basic core things that put the military in bad positions all the time that you could certainly see officers be the biggest group to switch. But that goes into national trends, which is college degrees, right? People with college degrees. So, you know, I think some of it plays into what's there, but it certainly was interesting dynamic. I think the question now is, is it going to be there in four years? Because if it's not, it could be a problem for Joe Biden and his coalition. Right. Um, how we like to always get people something to do, something they can do to, to help with, with the cause. And so how can people help you do what you're doing in uh, in uh, pushing for progressive military policy and for progressive candidates in uh by supporting yep. candidates that are that are veterans, how can they help uh, VoteVets uh, perform its mission? Thank you, Marcos. <laughs> Go to VoteVets.org, sign up. We're going to ask you if you're a veteran. You do not have to be a veteran, but we're going to ask you if you're a veteran, a military family, a supporter. We're going to ask you to donate to certain candidates. We're going to ask you to sign petitions. If you're a veteran, we may put you in a television commercial because what makes VoteVets ads great is we actually take local veterans from their communities and give them a voice. That's the art of what we do, which is how do we give veterans a voice in the conversation? A lot of that's helping veterans run for office, but a lot of it is giving you a voice if there's a key congressional district where you're from. So we, we want you to sign up at Boat Bets and join our organization. And uh, we're very active with our email program. But by all means, you can uh, follow us in, in Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. We've got three great social media platforms with a community that, that you can interact with. If you sign up, we're going to do events. We do a lot of peer-to-peer texting over here uh, and that type of stuff and veteran events as well virtually. So we, we'd love to have you on our team. So thanks for, thanks for that opportunity, Marcos. So to everybody listening, just, just to stress, when, when Vote Vets came onto scene in the, in the mid, you know, what was it, 2006, 2005? 2006. Right? Yeah, 2006. Conservatives owned the conversation around veterans. It was sort of assumed that that they were the ones that decided what veterans wanted and what what, what it was to be pro veteran. And and so over the you know ensuing decades, Vote Vets has really sort of transformed that and, and created a more balanced uh, conversation and more nuanced conversation when it comes to veterans. So it's an incredibly important organization, critical piece of progressive infrastructure, always immensely in huge gratitude for what you do and what you represent and what you've accomplished and built. So thank you so very much, John. And thank you so much for joining us today. I want to, I want to just throw in a plug too, because I was uh, in Washington covering LGBTQ issues during the uh, the effort to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and Vote Vets was very, very good on that issue. And so I appreciate all that you did on uh, the work on that. So we we appreciate that, Carrie, because that was a perfect issue that demonstrates how people can participate. That was an issue that none of the traditional veteran service organizations would touch. And generationally, we fought and died with these folks who served our country. And and and. That's a perfect example of how Vote Vets works on issues that the traditional veterans groups, frankly, don't have the courage to work on. So we were proud to work on that. Um, it's been a huge success. I can't think of one person who's left the military because we repealed the don't ask, don't tell law. And that was the big you know, scare thing. So we, we appreciate that, that you remember that as well. And, and Marcos, we got to do this again with, with you, Gary. I'd love to, to come back on. Oh, absolutely. John Soltz, he's the chairman of VoteVets, VoteVets.org, and VoteVets on Twitter, on Instagram, on, uh, what's the last one that you had? 
Uh, do you have a TikTok yet? <laughs> Facebook, Facebook. No, Facebook. no, no. We just do Instagram, Facebook, Facebook and Twitter. Right? <laughs> okay. we don't, I don't know what TikTok is. I don't even know. I don't either. I don't, I don't, either. Really know. I don't know what TikTok is. <laughs> John Stoltz, still, thank I'm, you so I, I know Daily Coast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Gary, it, it really, I, I'm glad you brought up the Don't Ask, Don't Tell because it, it's it's such a concrete example of how a organization that is focused on policy for uh, veterans and military families and, and people that are serving can really help drive the progressive agenda. It's not about war. And a big part of their right. piece has been to get out of the war, which I, I'm not saying it's a minimal piece. That's massive. But it's also very much ingrained in our domestic policy agenda and a lot of these sort of core fights that we're having with the right, including um, gay rights. It was it was incredibly helpful. I mean, there were don't get me wrong. The drive to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell was mainly done by uh, lesbian and gay veterans. Right. They put their butts on the line. They did the heavy lifting. And there were some specific military um, organizations run by and for specifically um, LGBTQ veterans, like Service Members Legal Defense Network. But having a mainstream organization like uh, Vote Vets be strongly in favor of repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was incredibly helpful on that issue. So, um, you know, they, they can having a progressive organization that is giving light to, uh, you know, a different side of the argument on military issues is just uh, unbelievably helpful. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and if the if Republicans get any traction in trying to weaponize Afghanistan, I actually don't think they will. But who knows? They're very good at creating something out of nothing. So if they do get All traction, right. you know, fully expect Vovets to be like on the front line of of uh, pushing back against those efforts. They're incredibly yeah. incredible. John was absolutely right about the fact that if they win back either the Senate or the House or God forbid both, whatever they win back, if they do, they're going to spend all their time investigating the withdrawal of Afghanistan. That is going to something that, you know, gets them out of we were crappy on COVID, we're anti-science, we're anti-vaccine, you know, gets them out of like the January 6th insurrection. They get to be back to being like patriots on, you know, yeah. a military issue. They will just drive that home 24 seven. I think. Yeah. It'll be, and, it'll so, be Benghazi, Benghazi on yeah. steroids. Yeah. Yeah. So Carrie, that's, our show today. Thank you for being such a wonderful co-host as always. Thank you to John Soltz for being our guest. He is with Vote Vets. He's a chairman, votevets.org, and you can catch him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing the show, and thank you for joining us. You can you can be part of the conversation at dailycoast.com. You can catch us on Twitter at Daily Coast. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.